got the 60s vibe going on there with Vintage Jesus. So today is also a communion service before I forget, and um, we, we roll with the punches. Here's what pandemic communion looks like. Who's used these things before? Everybody hates these things. Nobody likes this, um, but, you know, we used to take communion where you dip the bread and a little bit of the juice, and you hope people don't put their fingers in, and, you know, we, we come through a line, and we can't, can't do that anymore, and we thought, well, what about, um, you know, passing those trays, like those big silver trays? You know, well, people with their hands and breathing, and there will be people that will feel uncomfortable, so here we go. Here's what we're left with, and so if you don't have one of these when you came in, Brian's going to bring the basket by. Brian, if you want to just kind of walk up and down the aisle, you can, you can pull a... a a pandemic communion cup out of the basket. And then my son, just one more point of instruction before we start. My, point, my son, when he saw this, he's like, Daddy, where's the bread? And I said, well, you see that little white speck right there? Whatever that thing is, that's the bread. So we'll take communion together at the end of the service, and Brian will bring one by if he didn't get one. So, all right. Today we're starting this new service, uh, sermon series, Vintage Jesus, Spotting the Authentic Jesus in a World of Newly Created Fakes. It seems like there are many versions of Jesus now. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? When you look at our culture and what's happening in America, the, the political division, the, the hijacking of Christianity, it seems, there are different ways of putting it. It's, it. It seems like there are many versions of Jesus now in our culture. And for folks who are watching online, they can feel free to go ahead and, ty- and type something in. But for, here, for us, it's a rhetorical question. What is a version of Jesus that comes to mind? Is there a version of Jesus you've seen in our culture? And it comes to mind when you, when you hear about a series like this. For folks who are watching, feel free to type it in the comments. We want to be civil, but it's okay to be honest as well. What is a version of Jesus that comes to mind when you think about these versions of Jesus that have been created? It, it seems that we have folks who are using Jesus to support their own agenda in the United States. That perhaps they are creating Jesus in their own image. It's been said before that a lot of us do this anyway, is that uh, Jesus can function like a, well, like a projector screen. And, and we can project onto Jesus our ideal selves or whatever we believe in. And we just kind of assume, and this is true for me. I mean, I've, I've found myself doing this before where I can assume that Jesus just happens to agree with me. Isn't it cool how that works? And that I can project my own views onto Jesus, as though Jesus were some kind of projection screen. But it seems like maybe that's happening more, yes, but maybe there are some folks who are doing it on purpose as well, and creating a version of Jesus that just doesn't seem to make sense when we read the Jesus of the Gospels. And so what we want to do in this series is look at the real Jesus that we see in in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and specifically through teachings of Jesus called parables. So a parable is a story that illustrates a spiritual point. It's an illustration. You make a point and then you tell a parable to kind of, to kind of illustrate what you're saying. And, and Jesus often taught in parables. And so this series really is a series on parables. Where every week we're going to look at a fake version of Jesus that we see in our culture. And then we're going to contrast that with the Jesus that we see in, in his own parables. In the actual gospels. And so here's where we're headed in the series. Today I'm going to talk about militant culture war Jesus versus the parable of the prodigal son. Next week, prosperity gospel Jesus. This is the televangelist Jesus versus the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. August 15th, anti-outsider Jesus. That Jesus just, he, Jesus likes the nice, beautiful, clean-cut religious people. And, and Jesus doesn't want anything to do with, with people who are outsiders. Well, we'll see about that in the parable of the great banquet. And then nice guy Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the idea that Jesus is a pushover or a doormat, well, we'll see what what that looks like in the barren fig tree, and then political party Jesus versus the parable of the mustard seed, and then finally uh, nationalist Jesus versus the parable of the good Samaritan. But today, militant Jesus versus the prodigal son. So first of all, a little history would help to kind of put us on the same page. In the 1960s and 70s in the United States, there was a movement towards liberal values. You had the civil rights movement of the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr., and of course in the, in the 50s and into the 60s, and, and, and then you had feminism and a movement towards women's rights. You had the very beginning in the 70s of a movement towards gay rights. Uh, you had Roe v. Wade passed in 1973. So the, the 60s and 70s were a time of liberal values in the United States, and then after that, 
there was a conservative Christian reaction to that liberal value movement. So in the mid to late 70s, Southern preachers like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson gained uh, an audience, and they really built a following as a reaction to these liberal values. And, and so they, they had a certain agenda, a conservative Christian agenda, that they uh, began pushing. And, and I grew up, as I've shared before, if you've been around you know, uh, the well for a while, I grew up uh, watching Christian TV, watching Pat Robertson on TV, and, and he had a show called The 700 Club. And, and long before Fox News or any other cable news network, Pat Robertson would air a segment uh, on the news during the Seven Heart Club, and they would report on things that, they were, that were important to them. And then he would come on, and he would offer commentary. And, uh, and the news stories, of course, were always these kind of culture war news stories. And then he would comment, and he, and he would be very clear about how he felt about these issues, and not only about how he felt, but how Jesus feels about all these issues. And so, uh, you didn't have to watch very long at all to get the, the, the hierarchy of evil in Pat Robertson's eyes. You know, it went something like abortion, same-sex marriage, Satan himself, and then Democrats. It was like something like that. There was a clear hierarchy. And, and, and I was young, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on in the world, and and so I heard about this, and then, and then Jerry Falwell led a, a group called the Moral Majority, and they really got involved in politics in, in 1980. And, and um, this, there, there was a version of Jesus that was created by this conservative Christian reaction to the liberal movement of the 60s and the 70s. And I just assumed that was who Jesus was. And then I read the Gospels. And I, I had the experience, the, the strange experience, of thinking, you know, these, these versions of Jesus that have been created by Christian TV and my family and everybody I know who goes to church, and there seem to be some differences between that version of Jesus and the Jesus that I read about in the Gospels. If you remember a few years ago, it was 2012, the, the CEO of Chick-fil-A made some comments about marriage. You, who remembers this? I know 2012 seems like 100 years ago, but, and he, he, he made some comments about marriage and, and um, taking the more conservative, you know, Christian position. And, and there was a politician at the time who was smack dab in between presidential runs in 28, or 2008 and 2012 who, who saw an opportunity, and he declared National Chick-fil-A Day, just politician style. And and, and so we're going to go to Chick-fil-A and eat, and by going to Chick-fil-A and eating, we're going to support Jesus. And I remember seeing the line wrapped around the building at Gilbert and Germain here locally, and, and I thought, you know, does, did Jesus come and teach and die on the cross, and we believe rose from the dead so that people could stand in line for a fried chicken sandwich? And, and to say that kids should go to conversion therapy. You know, when the, when the suicide rate is so much higher for gay kids. Is that what Jesus wants? Is that who Jesus is? And so it seems that there are many versions of Jesus in American culture. And this is one of them, this militant culture where Jesus, where Jesus wants to defeat people at the ballot box. You know, Pat Robertson, he, he, was, he was sure he knew how Jesus votes. And, and we have this version of Jesus where we just want to get rid of people that we don't like. It's like we're a medieval king. Be gone, and we can banish people. And, and, and Jesus just wants to fight these wars all the time. And I normally wouldn't do this, but, but just to make the point uh, as clear as possible, and, and because I, I saw an example uh, of this militant culture war Jesus that was just about the clearest example I've ever seen. It was a couple weeks ago on a Facebook post by, uh, by Franklin Graham who was, of course, the son of the, the famous evangelist Billy Graham, and, and he, he made a, a Facebook post about a, about a senator praising this senator who said, um, this isn't just a culture war. Oh, it is that to him, but it isn't just that. It's a war between Judeo-Christian values and Marxism, which the Democratic Party is pushing. And you, uh, there are Republicans and Democrats in this church. Believe it or not, there are both. 
And, and at the same time, this is the leader of a nonprofit organization, two of them actually, Samaritan's Purse and, and his dad's organization, the Billy Graham Evangelist Association, clearly endorsing a candidate, calling Democrats Marxist, and saying that we're in a war for Judeo-Christian values. I thought, wow, that's one of the clearest examples I've ever seen of militant culture war. Jesus, is this who Jesus is? Well, let's look at the parable of the prodigal son and see what you think. So we're going to dive into this parable. It's in Luke chapter 15. Many of you know it by heart. You could tell the story. Other Jewish rabbis told stories like this, the parable of the prodigal son. And here's the most important thing for us, though. The most important detail about this parable is one that often gets missed. I've heard lots of sermons on the prodigal son. The most important detail often gets missed, and it's this. It's who Jesus was telling this story to. Who was in the room when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son? And Luke actually tells us in verse 15, let's take a look, Luke, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They muttered against Jesus. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Maybe you think you've been called worse things in your life, but that was pretty bad in the time of Jesus. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the tax collectors, these were people who worked for the Roman government. They're entrepreneurs. The Romans occupied the land Jesus lived in. They collected taxes for the Romans, and they kept a little for themselves. And because of that, how did people feel about them? Thumbs down. Somebody just thumbs down. That's right. So tax collectors, and then we had sinners. Sinners was a social category in the time of Jesus. A sinner was somebody, yes, who might be seen as living an immoral lifestyle, but a sinner could also be somebody who just didn't keep the ritual purity laws. They were viewed as unclean, dirty. There were also people who were thought of as sinners because they have a disability, or they, there was just something about them that made them different in the eyes of some folks. And they were called sinners because of that. There were people, believe it or not, I mean, if you were born blind, there's a story in John, John, Gospel of John, where a guy's born blind and the disciples say, well, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? So sinners was a category, it was a label that was slapped onto people. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees were a religious separatist group. They believed that what God wants from us is God wants us to keep ourselves separate from all of these other people who don't stay pure and holy and follow God the way we do. We need to separate ourselves from all of these unclean people. And if we do that, then we'll be pure and God will accept us because we've pushed all those unclean people away. The teachers of the law weren't quite that hardcore, but there were overlaps. And so this, this was the group that was in the room when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. And, and you know how that story begins. Jesus says there was, there was a man who, who had two sons. And it goes like this, Luke 15, verse 11. It's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the younger son goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Now, normally, you have the courtesy to wait until somebody dies before you ask for their inheritance. But this younger son, it was very insulting and disrespectful to his father. It was basically saying, I don't care if you live or die. I just want your money. So Jesus starts this story by painting a picture of this, of this kid who everybody in the room, everybody in the room at this point is thinking, man, this kid is a jerk. Who would do that? What kind of terrible person would, would demand that their father give them the inheritance? But that's who this kid is. So now here's the amazing thing. This father, he does it. He's this compassionate, loving dad, I guess. And, and he, he divided his property and he gave the inheritance to his two sons. And you know what happens next. The younger son goes off into 
a far land, and, and Luke says he squandered his wealth in wild living. And we know what wild living means, right? And so he, he's, he's, he's living a lifestyle that the, that the religious folks, definitely the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, do not approve of. So it's getting worse. First of all, he's, he's disrespectful to his father. Now he's going off and he's, he's living a wild life. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law are, oh, this kid. And, and so Jesus continues ratcheting up the story. He, he parties away all the money. Doesn't take long. He has friends around him. Things are going great. You know, there are people in this world who will hang around you as long as you have the money and you're cool and that kind of thing. And if that disappears, they're gone. And you find out who your real friends are pretty quickly. But in this case, he partied the money away. All the people were gone. And he had no way to live, no way to support himself. And so he got a job. And this is, an, uh, uh, this is a Jewish young man. He got a job with a pig farmer. And so the story starts to get funny at this point. If we were in the room, a pig is the most unclean animal imaginable. It's a symbol. It's the ultimate symbol of uncleanness to everybody in the room that was hearing this story. And so Jesus is like, first of all, he disrespected his father and he wanted the inheritance. And they're like, ugh. And then he went off and he squandered his father's wealth and wild living. And, and be like, oh, it's getting worse, this kid. And now... The kid is working for a pig farmer, and they're just collapsing at this point. How could somebody be this bad, this horrible, this terrible? This is just, this is, these are the kind of people that we're trying to be separate from. These are the trashy people, the dirty people that we just don't want to be around. That's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thinking. And so it, it gets kind of funny if you're in the room. But Jesus is just ratcheting up the pressure. And this kid's getting worse and worse and worse. Now, I would imagine at this point in the story, there's a, there's a divide that takes place between the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and then you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they're just ready to write this kid off. Be gone. We, we want to defeat people like this. We want them out of our lives the, the tax collectors and sinners, I, I would imagine they were probably thinking at this point, I can kind of identify with that kid. And I wonder, I wonder how the story is going to go, because they came to hear Jesus. I wonder what Jesus is going to say next, because that kind of indicates how he feels about me and how God feels about me. And, and, you know, we've all made mistakes. We've all done things that are wrong. And they were probably thinking of all those things. And in verse 17, Jesus says one of the most beautiful things that you could, you could read in Scripture. Verse 17 said this, this young man was starving. He was looking at pigs and pig slop. And he was so hungry that he wished that he could just eat the pig slop. And the kid hits rock bottom. And in verse 17, Jesus said, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. He says, the young man says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Imagine feeling like that. Make me like one of your hired servants. So Jesus says, this, this younger son has a real moment of clarity. This is real. And he decides that uh, he doesn't want to live like this anymore. And he, he's, he truly repents, and, which means to change your mind. It'll, a you know, biblical word that means to change your mind, to do a U-turn. And he's going to go back to his father, and I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And at this point in the story, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law probably, probably thought, this kid's irredeemable. And they wrote him off. 
somebody to be defeated. He lost the war. Be gone. And the tax collectors and, and sinners were thinking, that's me. That's me. Now, their question is, how is this dad going to respond? Because as, as they're sitting in the room listening to Jesus tell the story, they're thinking, I, I came to hear Jesus, and the way Jesus ends the story is going to tell me how Jesus feels about me and about how God feels about me. How's this going to end? How's, how's the dad in this story going to respond? So the, the son has his little speech prepared that he's going to take to his dad. And he gets up and starts walking down the road. And if verse 17 was a beautiful verse, verse 20 is just, just going to break the meter. Jesus says, he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And here's what that means if we read between the lines in the story. He was looking for his son. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are thinking, man, this kid's just trash. This kid needs to be defeated. There's no hope for people like this. You just let, just let them go. Be gone. Get out of here. Ooh, get it away. Get it away. The tax collectors and sinners are wondering, is there any hope for me? And here's what Jesus says. This, this father was searching for his son, looking for his son, praying for his son, crying tears over his son, missing his son. Please, God, let my boy be okay. I don't even know where he is. I could imagine. But please let him be okay. And he, he runs to his son. And in the Middle East, at this time, a, a man wore a robe. And it was disrespectful. It was embarrassing for him to, to expose his feet or his ankles. It's part of the culture. And this dad doesn't care. He picks up his robe and he takes off running. He doesn't care what people think of him. He doesn't care who's watching. That doesn't even enter his mind. He sees this poor disheveled figure that kind of looks like his son. That's the story Jesus is telling here. And he, he picks up his robe, ankles and all, and he takes off running for his son, and he throws his arms around his son, crying tears of joy, and kisses him. And you can imagine what he said, oh, I've been so worried about you. Oh, it's so good to see you. And the son has no chance to give his little speech about how I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. The father gives directions to his, his people. We're going to throw a party, and we're going to celebrate the fact that my son has come home. And you probably know how the story ends. There's a party and everybody's celebrating and except for one guy who's not celebrating. The older brother. Typical, right? Birth order stuff here. The older brother sees what's happening and he, he goes to his father and he won't even say my brother. He says, this son of yours and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, kind of gloss over what he says, but this son of yours squandered your money in quote-unquote wild living, and you're throwing a party for him, and here I am. I never left, and I've never gotten a party. And then the, the father says to the son, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And everybody in the room now knew what the story meant and who Jesus was talking to. First of all, God's not fighting a culture war. And here, here's what, what they all heard in the story, especially the, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, Jesus embraces the very people religious society rejects. Jesus embraces the very people that churches and Christian TV and 
this, this militant version of Jesus, the people, religious society rejects Jesus like that father, embraces those folks and throws his arm around them and kisses them and throws a party if they want to have a relationship with him. Now, I know we're a little church and we're new, but here's something that needs to be said in the United States, and you can, you can please let me know if you agree, okay? You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and miss this because we're seeing what happens when people call themselves Christians and they miss this. We see the disgust in society as people walk away from church. We see how the name of Jesus is co-opted by nationalism and, and authoritarian politics and how racism is used and people are scapegoated and it just gets gross really quickly. How many of you realize this morning how important it is that people who want to follow Jesus don't miss this, that Jesus embraces the very people religious society rejects. Do you think that's important for us to get? We can't miss this. There are so many Christians in the United States who are missing this. And here's what happens. They call themselves Christians, but they end up being anti-Christ. Wow, Ryan. They call themselves Christians, but they end up opposing the kind of work that Jesus wants to do. They, they call themselves followers of Jesus, but they end up being like the people who oppose Jesus in the Gospels, building walls between people and God, pushing people away, uh, making people disenchanted and repulsed by religion and church attendance craters, and people want nothing to do with it. And, and it's, used, it's used to back up these crazy political causes that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That's what happens when Christians miss this. Jesus makes it clear to everybody in that room that he embraces the very people religious society rejects, which is really good news for people like you and me. Because who knows, in the Middle Ages, we'd all be dead. We would have been executed by now. If you've got questions or if you, you know, you, you know, there are things that religious people don't like about you, we'd all be dead by now. And so that's good news for us. It's good news for me that, that Jesus, that like, the, like the father and this prodigal son, Jesus throws his arms around me, and the same is true of you. Jesus says the way God looks at you is the way the father in, in this story looks at his younger son, because none of this is perfect. But if we come back home, he's, he's, first of all, he's searching for us and longing for us and crying for us, and we come back home and he wraps his arms around us and, and kisses us and throws a party. That's how God feels about you. You're embraced, even if religious society rejects you. And here's another thing that means. It means if you're, if you're somebody like me, and like I know many of us here, and you struggle with making sense of your faith, and you can call it deconstruction or reconstruction, there are different terms for that, what this means is you can integrate your view of God in your mind with what you know is right in your heart. You can integrate your, your view of God in your mind with what you know is right in your heart. And just to, to flesh out what I'm talking, talking about, most of us have been given a view of God that is different from the father and the prodigal son, correct? We've been given a view of God that God is the angry old man in the sky. God, God shoots lightning bolts at people. God is like the smiter. Nobody wants to get smote. And so you live in fear. You live, some of us, maybe you right now, you still carry the weight of religious anxiety on your shoulders from your upbringing. Maybe you still carry that. And you just, you try to slough it off and you just, it just keeps coming back on. You just, I can't get rid of this. Some of you are asking questions right now. And you're thinking, man, I know what some of my friends and family think of the questions I'm asking. Because they've told me. <laughs> Many times. And, and you feel a sense of rejection from those religious communities. And we've been given a, a picture of God that comes from our, our parents or from pastors and, yes, from the Bible. 
I know a pastor who, who has been controversial throughout much of his ministry. I don't know him personally. I know people who know him personally. He's pretty well known. And, and he said in a sermon a few years ago, if, if, you are, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, God hates you. And people are like, what? And not just hates sin or whatever. No, God hates you. You're an enemy of God. And that, that really got attention, even in the evangelical Christian world, because you don't normally hear things like that. And, and, and would preach that view of God, that God is just this harsh, uh, this harsh, you know, uh, fearsome deity in the sky and, and is wrathful towards you. And doesn't just oppose sin, but opposes you. And, and like, wow, okay. Now, the people that I know who know him, they've known him since he was a young guy. And they said his, his dad was a violent alcoholic. Now, is it too big of a stretch to think that his view of, his, of God has been influenced by his view of his father? And is it, I mean, does it take a rocket scientist to figure out, okay, well, his God kind of seems like a violent alcoholic because that's what his dad was. Now, there are lots of people who have dads that are violent alcoholics, and they don't end up saying things like that, but he hasn't healed through it. And so what he's doing, because he hasn't healed from that, he's spewing that all over his congregation and through a podcast and videos, and, and he's just throwing that up on everybody around him because he hasn't healed. But that was a view of God that came from his father. Now, I've also had lots of conversations over the years with folks who you know, they have a view of God that is harsh and angry and wrathful and definitely not like the father and the prodigal son because they, they got that from parts of the Bible. And that's one of the most troubling questions. I, I've had a couple of conversations just the past couple of weeks with folks about that. And so what do we do when we read parts of the Bible that, that seem to present God as, you know, God, God commands the extermination of a race of people in Deuteronomy. Or, or God, uh, you know, go conquer this city. Or somebody's killed because they're a heretic and God's like, yeah. And what do we make of passages like that? And so one of the takeaways that we can, that we can uh, benefit from the, the parable of the prodigal son is the view of God presented in the Bible evolves throughout the Bible. Early on in Scripture, God kills almost everybody in a flood. And then we make like, as Aaron said a couple weeks ago, we make like cute kids' bedroom decorations out of the ark, right? And then you read that story, like, whoa, maybe we should take that off the nightstand. That's not a good thought before you go to bed. And, and, and God is presented as this angry, violent, tribal warrior deity. Okay, well, the priests who wrote that at that time, perhaps 2,000 years B.C., lived in a society that was constantly being attacked by Egypt and by the Babylonians and the Persians. And when you're constantly being attacked, you can see why somebody might want their God to defend them and this was the mentality at that time. So is it like the pastor with the violent dad? Is it any wonder that, okay, well, people who live in a culture like that, I could see how God, yeah, is like this divine warrior who fights their battles for them, and that's comforting. Sure, it makes sense. But then over time, society evolves, the human race evolves, and we see, well, that's, that's barbaric. We don't believe that God would command the extermination of an entire race of people. We know what happens when, when leaders say that they should exterminate a race of people. We've seen what that looks like. And then throughout the Bible, the view of God evolves, obviously, from what you see in the parable of the prodigal son. And Jesus said things like, you've heard this, but I say to you. And Jesus is constantly challenging the Pharisees and their view of God. That's what the Gospels are about. They're a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees about who God is. And so the view of God evolves throughout the Bible. Brian McLaren, in his book, A New Kind of Christianity, that came about about 10 years ago, calls this angry God, theos. That's the Greek word for God. He says a lot of it comes from Greek mythology, actually, through the Roman Empire and then down through the Middle Ages and into America, because we get a lot of our culture from the Romans and the Greeks. And, and he said, it's no wonder that a lot of people view God like Zeus, 
who is an old man with a beard who shoots lightning bolts at people. And he calls this god Zeus and and, and Jupiter and, and Theos, the angry, vengeful god. And then Brian writes about how that view of God evolves throughout the Bible. And he says it like this, I'm saying that human beings can't do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God. And that scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, each new vision is faithfully preserved in scripture like fossils in layers of sediment. Does anybody find that helpful? That the view of God throughout the Bible evolves throughout the Bible. Now, for some of us, that's like, great, cool. Others, like me, were raised in an atmosphere where you were, you were taught that essentially God dictated the Bible. The Bible is so inspired by God that God essentially just put thoughts in the author's heads and they wrote, yeah, but it was God's thoughts in every single word. It's inerrant, even in matters of history and science. And, and so it, it makes no sense that God would evolve throughout the Bible if that's your view. But that's not what we see for a million reasons in Scripture, and I've given series about that before, and we'll do it again. But people who, try to, who believe that, that view, they try to harmonize these views of God. And I promise, there was in, back when I was in, um, in Bible college, there was a book that was assigned where there were four views of this time that God ex- commands the extermination of this race of people in Deuteronomy, the extermination of the Canaanites. And, and I promise you... <laughs> There were four views in the book. One of the, one of the views was, well, you know, hey, sometimes you've got to take matters into your own hands. You know, the Canaanites were pretty bad and ends up defending genocide. Most people in the world now know that's not an option. And if you try to harmonize the father in the parable of the prodigal son with the God of Deuteronomy, that's going to present problems. And so N.T. Wright, one of, the, one of the best New Testament scholars in the world, says the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is culturally conditioned. It's all written in the language of particular times and evokes the cultures in which it came to birth. It seems when we get close up to it as though if we grant for a moment that in some sense or other God has indeed inspired this book, God has not wanted to give us an abstract set of truths unrelated to space and time. That's Bible scholar language for Whatever it means that the Bible is inspired by God, the authors wrote out of their particular time, their particular place, their views of the world, their own languages, their own vocabularies. There are books of the Bible that are better written than others. The author had a better vocabulary in one book than the author of another book. The book of Daniel switches from Hebrew and then to Aramaic and back to Hebrew. You know, so if God dictated that, God had an interesting half an hour or so as God dictated that in two different languages. And so it seems that the view of God has evolved throughout the Bible. And a couple more things and we'll move on. And so what this means for people who want to follow Jesus is this. Paul says in in Colossians 1, the Son, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So God's invisible, but But Jesus is the image of this invisible God. In other words, when you see Jesus, you've seen God. And if you want to understand who God is, you look at Jesus. The Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood said, The historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It is far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. And Jesus tells parables like the parable of the prodigal son. God is not like Zeus. God is like the dad, or could be a mother, in this parable. So what does that mean for your spiritual life? Well, it means that God looks at you the way that this father looks at the younger son. No matter what religious society or Christian TV says about you, whatever politicians who hijack Christianity say about you, that father wraps his arms around you and embraces 
you. And you, that means your religious guilt complex is unnecessary. That means living in fear of God, that you're going you're gonna to mess up and you're just, you feel like this restriction, like, man, if I go this way or if I go that way, if I make this decision, if I make this decision, what's God, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make God angry and what's God going to think of me and I'm failing and I, I can't, that's all, that's all a waste of your time and energy because God throws his, God's arms around you and weeps tears of joy just at the idea of being able to have a relationship with you. That's how God views you. And you don't have to constantly be torn between the God that you know is right in your heart, that people need love, and if there's a God, certainly God has to be a loving God, but yet I'm being told by lots of religious and political leaders that this, this God wants me to banish people and defeat them in a culture war. Well, no, you can integrate the view of God in your mind with the God you know is right in your heart. And then last, you can experience the peace in the times that we live in. You can experience the peace of refusing to write people off. And here's what I mean by that. It's really easy to give a message like this and just put it all on those, you know, the religious conservatives, Pat Robertson, the, the people who are on that side of the aisle, and just put it all on them. But if you're anything like me, especially over the past year and a half or so, the challenge for you has been seeing people that say outlandish things, things that are morally wrong, attacking American democracy in the name of Jesus, and, and you just, you just want to, you just don't know how to think and feel. And for me, the temptation is to, like a medieval king, be gone, just to banish them and want to defeat, defeat, defeat them, and I vote, and I, you should vote, and I believe in voting, and, that's, and, and we speak up for what's right because of a loving God that we believe in in our head and our heart. We speak up for what's right. And at the same time, a story like the prodigal son reminds me that I don't want to fall into hating people. Maybe they hate, and I see the hatred that, that they have for the people, but I don't want to hate them. And they might view me as an enemy, but I don't want to view them as an enemy. I don't want to fall into that. Because everybody can come to their senses. As it's been said, a broken, a broken clock is, is right twice a day. You know, none of us gets it perfect. Everybody can come to their senses. And so when we live viewing other people as an enemy and we hate them and, and we just despise them and look down on us, that's a heavy burden to bear. Wanting to, wanting to just banish them and, and be separate from them and not have anything to do with them anymore. But that's not, that's not who God is. Everybody is redeemable. Like the prodigal son, everybody can come to his senses, come to their senses, and, and I'm, I'm wrapping up soon, I promise. There's a, a video, it's about three minutes long, uh, of a guy who used to be a part of the QAnon movement. I saw online. And um, he kind of fell into QAnon in 2017. As you probably know, that's a set of conspiracy theories that's driving a lot of the, the the craziness we're seeing in, in America right now. And, and he fell into QAnon, and then he got out of it. And so for us, maybe, maybe a takeaway from the parable of the prodigal son is there is such a thing as a former QAnon adherent. There is such a thing as a former believer in the big lie. And we can refuse to write people off, and we can hold out hope be, be, ready to, be, be ready to welcome people if they're willing to come to their senses. So I want to show you this video. It's three minutes long, and it's, a, it's an amazing story about this guy who used to be a part of QAnon and then came out. Let's watch. Looking back, it seems so obvious that I was like probably in a deep depression when I found Q. Jatar Jadeja, who is 32, says he found QAnon on the internet in 2017. Though he's Australian, he had previously lived in the US and was already interested in American politics. I think superficially it did seem like it gave me comfort. I didn't realize the nefarious kind of impact it was having on me because it was very insidious how it slowly disconnected me from reality. 
Jadeja followed QAnon for over two years, long enough, he says, to share the theories with his father. We used to talk about it a lot. We used to only talk about it with each other. We'd show each other things like, did you see that? Did you see that? We tend to underestimate the extent to which these sorts of narratives are appealing. And so you have people who are essentially looking for answers. And so it's a very compelling narrative to say, all of this is orchestrated. There's a cabal coming after you. They're trying to make your life miserable. You want an answer for why bad things are happening? Here they are. For Jadeja, cracks had already begun to form about QAnon when he started noticing logical inconsistencies in theories. The turning point came when he watched a video that disproved the final part of the conspiracy he believed in. That kind of like shattered me, right? So then I, I just like, I went outside, like I had a cigarette, and I was just like, man, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I've never felt so down. Like, it was the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. It's like, oh my, I cannot trust my thoughts and emotions anymore. I don't know what to do. I was full of self-loathing. You know, you obviously went down the Q rabbit hole and got back out. For people who are very deeply entrenched and believe in it now, is there any way to, to sort of bring them back? Yeah, there is, but it has to start with empathy and understanding, which is non-judgmental and allowing them to keep their dignity. Because otherwise, what's their incentive? And on top of that, you have to admit you were wrong, so wrong for so many years and that you were made a fool of. There has to be some sort of incentive and some pathway back. Jadeja says he feels deep guilt over sharing QAnon theories with his dad. Jadeja's father did not respond to CNN's multiple attempts to contact him. And that is why that this is a big problem, not just because people are being taken in and their families are like being ripped apart. This is, this is an existential battle between good and evil that these people think they're fighting. Looking back, it seems so obvious that I was like probably in a deep depression when I found Q. Jatark Jadeja, who is 32, says he found QAnon on the internet in 2017. It repeated. We can go on to the next slide. So you heard him say that he was depressed. And did you catch that he, it gave him an opportunity to have a relationship with his dad. Did you catch that? He was able to bond with his dad over QAnon, which is gone now because his dad is still a QAnon adherent. And so it, for me, it just gave me a human face to be able to have some kind of empathy as much as I'm as, uh, troubled and horrified by what I see happening in our country. After reading the parable of the prodigal son, you know, everybody can come to their senses. And I, I want to refuse to write people off. I want to leave the light on, leave the door open. And if you pick up your pandemic communion cup, we're going to take communion together in a moment. And for us, especially those of us who have felt rejected by religious society, for us today, perhaps communion is a demonstration, of course, of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but of, of Jesus himself or God or however you envision, maybe Jesus throwing his arms around you. And I understand that, that maybe you come from evangelical churches where there, you know, there was a lot of emotional manipulation from the pulpit and so on, but I wonder for those of us who are in the, the kind of journey we're in now, if we carry around a sense of rejection from other people, right, in our families, churches, and I wonder how healing it would be as we take communion to imagine Jesus embracing us and, and, and shedding tears, saying, I'm so glad you're here. Wherever you are at home right now, I'm so glad that you want to have a relationship with me and that, that you are into spiritual things and you, you search and, and seek and you think about things and I'm so glad that you are home here with me. I wonder if we take communion, if that would be helpful to you. Uh, if you would, go ahead and stand. And... 
as we think about the bread, I really couldn't tell my son it was bread, but as we think about this that means bread, represents bread, really represents the body of Christ. And as Jesus shared a meal with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, he said, thank God for the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you as often as you eat or remember me. And that he loves you that much to be broken for you. Let's eat of the bread. Jesus embraces the very people religious society rejects. And he took the cup and he thanked God for it and he said, this is my blood shed for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me, let's drink from the cup. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, in our mind's eye, we picture you like, like the parent of the prodigal son wrapping your arms around us and welcoming us, us home. Everybody in the room knew what that story meant. Jesus pronounced an indictment on religious communities that reject people who are searching for God. And it was the greatest news imaginable to the tax collectors and the sinners, and it's the greatest news imaginable to us. It's not just that the son had to make a speech and, and go home and grovel. It's that the father was looking for him and ran towards him. And in the same way, oh God, we don't have to live weighed, weighed down by a sense of religious anxiety, religious guilt, that has been placed upon us by people who were probably doing their best. But their views of God that don't represent the kind of God that Jesus teaches about in these parables. And so we want to integrate our view of God in our minds with what we know is right in our hearts and what we know we need in our hearts. Even the view of you evolved throughout the scripture as people wrestled with who you are. But as Paul said, when we, when we see Jesus, we see the image of the invisible God. And it's this view of you that Jesus gives to us, a loving parent who runs to us and embraces us and welcomes us home. We thank you, God, for the healing that that can accomplish in our lives. we thank you for this parable of the prodigal son. In Jesus' name, everybody said it.